worked away faithfully, quite independent of the church in Jerusalem. Years have passed, actually. Although he has had minimal contact with the church in its city of origin, the Christian church has grown under his leadership in the non-Jewish world. He wasn't summoned to the church in Jerusalem for this conference with church leaders there, but rather God spoke to him and asked him to go there for the sake of the church working together in unity. He's traveled there with a very inclusive team that represents the church as it was in those days. He takes Barnabas, a Jew, and Titus, a Greek. Barnabas was a very highly respected Jewish Christian. In fact, Barnabas wasn't his real name. We're told in Acts that his real name is Joseph. But the apostles call him Barnabas as a sort of nickname. Now, nicknames usually pick out prominent features of a person, don't they? A bit like the seven dwarves in the fairy tale of Snow White. Doc, grumpy, happy, sleepy, bashful, sneezy, and dopey. I wonder which one you would be. They can come to define a person, can't they, nicknames? Barnabas means son of encouragement. How lovely to have such a ministry of encouragement that people give you a nickname to reflect it, because that's what they see in you. I wonder if we were to give one another nicknames in the same way, what people would choose to rename each other. It's quite a challenging thought, isn't it? If you remember a couple of weeks back, we talked about Barnabas being the courageous one who came alongside Paul and welcomed him into the church when he was first converted. Although Paul was still considered an extremely dangerous man by the early church, and people were not at all sure if they could really trust him, Barnabas welcomed him as a brother in the Lord and helped him in the early days of his walk with Jesus. He was a true son of encouragement. It was also Barnabas, as a respected Jewish Christian, who was sent from Jerusalem over to Antioch to support Paul in his work with the Gentile church. Excuse me. <clears throat> as it began to grow there. People recognized his skills as a bridge builder, a bringer of people together. This also made him the perfect choice when the church in Antioch wanted to send a party along with Paul back to Jerusalem to take a collection that they had made for famine relief, supporting the wider church. Barnabas really does embody the church working together, although different, for the sake of the gospel. The other member of this little team is Titus. He's a non-Jew. In fact, he was Greek. His presence in the deputation really forced the question of the discrimination that was rife in the church against those who were not Jewish. For Jews, circumcision was a sign of the covenant God made with the Jewish people. It made them special, a sort of exclusive club. It was a key issue, one might almost say an obsession in the early church. 
It was for them a question of identity. Circumcision allowed Jews to know who was part of their group and who was not. At first, all the early Christians were Jewish. But as the gospel spread and Gentiles heard and responded to the good news, how to define who was part of this new church and who was not became a bit contentious. For Jews, keeping the Jewish law did that job. Although the church um, spread, (coughs) excuse me again, (coughs) when the church spread, keeping the Sabbath, or eating only kosher food was was quite hard to police who was doing the right thing. Circumcision, however, was a very black and white affair. You either were or you were not circumcised. Titus, although a Christian, was not circumcised. So we have Paul, a converted Jew of high standing, and we have Barnabas, also a Jewish Christian, and we have Titus, a Greek Christian who is not circumcised, believing that God accepts him as he is. This little group is a living illustration of what it looks like to live in the freedom of the gospel, in inclusive relationships. It shows the power of the gospel to break down barriers and create a kind of unity that transcends divisive barriers that can get set up in society. Although they might be different according to each context of time and place, every society has those. I wonder if you're aware of the barriers we put up around ourselves here in Walcott. So these three men overcame barriers of ethnic, social and cultural exclusion and they were united by a common faith. They're working together in freedom for the sake of the gospel, just as it is our hope that our church family welcomes people from all sorts of backgrounds and from every part of the city, just as missionary organizations like our partners YWAM are staffed by young people from all manner of nations and backgrounds. So this little group offers us an example of the importance of working together in freedom and in unity for the sake of the gospel. They traveled together to Jerusalem at God's instigation. Paul wants us to know that his actions are not motivated by the idea of pleasing men. No other person has told him to go. Nor is he motivated by his own pride or his own schemes to advance his cause for his message to be accepted. No, God has directed his path. He's sensitive to God's guiding voice and he's obedient to it. I wonder how sensitive we are to God's leading in our life. Are you listening for the whisper of God's voice guiding you? in every area of your life, your family, your work life, your finances, your friendships, your future. In fact, everything, nothing is outside of God's interest. 
simply church matters. Everything. I wonder how Paul felt about responding to this nudge from the Holy Spirit to go back to Jerusalem. It certainly wasn't without risk for him. I wonder if he was tempted to dismiss the idea as a as sort of nonsense and carry on with his comfortable ministry as though he hadn't heard God. We do that sometimes, don't we? Paul goes to Jerusalem confident in the truth he preaches and so not at all defensive and able to allow the nervousness of the Jerusalem Christians to evaluate his teaching. He spends a fortnight with Peter and James and John, getting to know them a little and sharing his take on the gospel message. He's willing for them to evaluate his teaching, but he's not willing to compromise on central issue of the gospel message. And that is that Jesus came as Lord of the world, who was crucified, died and rose again for all humankind. This means all believers are part of one family, and so there can be no division or exclusion amongst us based on nationhood or race. He's striding along a very precarious diplomatic path, but he is determined to keep his balance and be heard. For Paul, it doesn't matter how long you've been a believer, what your background or pedigree is, how well educated you are, who you are related to, or how high your standing in the community is. Remember, he's actually talking in Jerusalem to believers who actually met Jesus, and the James that was mentioned is Jesus' own brother. That might have been a little bit intimidating. He believes God is no respecter of persons. We're all judged by the same gospel truth. He talks of discussing with pillars. Pillars in Jerusalem would have been associated with the temple. They're designed to hold up very grand buildings, just like our ones here, actually. They're crucial to the integrity of the structure. This is the background of our phrase when we say that someone might be seen as a pillar of the community. Of course, it means that you're integral to the community's stability. It's quite a compliment, really. But Paul recognises that even those people submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and they had nothing to add to Paul's message. Nothing to add and nothing to take away. Although they each met Jesus and came to faith in a different way, he's delighted to report that the result of their discussions is that Peter, who is the apostle to the Jews, and he, Paul, who is sent to the Gentiles, should pursue their own ministries separate, but one in spirit for the sake of the gospel. They offered him the right hand of fellowship. They have distinct ministries, but it is worth noting that Peter, missionary to the Jews, 
was sent by God to the very first Gentile convert, Cornelius. And Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, was himself a lifelong Jew. Just as it's good to know the work that God is calling you to and to commit to it wholeheartedly doesn't mean that we can't occasionally contribute to other ministries. In our own church, although we're encouraged to commit in some way to an aspect of life together, it doesn't mean that we can't help out in, in other ministries should the opportunity arise. We can all pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't need to be on the ministry team to do so. Although we greatly appreciate the care of the pastoral care team who visit those who are sick and can't get out for whatever reason, we can all show care and love to those in need. We don't need to leave it just to them. Every one of us can serve the children's team or the hospitality team by helping to clear up at coffee time. And it was really lovely last week when we had so many guests here for Huey's baptism to see exactly that happening. Family, working together in harmony for the sake of the gospel. God does call people to specific ministries to exercise their special gifts. But he also expects us to work together as a family, serving one another in love and grace. Paul believes that the unity of the church is secure when we're clear about the essentials of our faith. And so he writes to the church in Galatia to offer them an example of how to live in harmony with others from diverse backgrounds and yet stand firm for the truth. It's a lesson as true for us today as it was then. Our attempts to build the church will come to nothing if we allow ourselves to be distracted by the wrong kinds of things. Our reputation is judged by our faithfulness to the gospel, nothing else. When we focus on God's work and not on details, that's when the kingdom thrives. As I pondered this, I wondered what would be our equivalent to this discussion here. We're not Jewish, so matters of Jewish law, to be fair, probably pass us by somewhat. But I wonder if we are sometimes inc inclined to judge other worshipping communities by, I don't know, the kind of music they prefer, whether they enjoy the same sort of liturgy as us, or perhaps wear robes more or less than we do. Paul challenges us not to get carried away and to think that the way we enjoy worshipping is more important than our relationship with Jesus. He challenges us not to be proud and fall into the trap of thinking that the way we do church is the only good way to be in relationship with God. It's for this reason that it's wonderful that the churches of Bath can come together later on today to worship in the park as one family, all of us working together in harmony in spite of our many differences. It's for this same reason that the focus of our attention this morning is the communion table around which we gather to remind ourselves of the essentials of the Christian story. 
As we stand together to receive the gifts of bread and wine, we remember the sacrifice of love offered by our Lord for all men and women who come to him repentant of their sins and willing to accept his love. As we gather today, let's focus on God's work of love and grace in us and take time to remember that it is indeed only by God's grace that we can enter his presence. Nothing we do makes the slightest bit of difference to our salvation. As we're going to sing in a moment the words of, uh, of this lovely song, only by grace can we enter, only by grace can we stand, not by our human endeavour, but by the blood of the Lamb. Into your presence you call us, you call us to come. Into your presence you draw us, and now by your grace we come. Lord, if you marked our transgressions, who would stand? Thanks to your grace we're cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Only by grace we can enter. Only by grace we can stand. Not by our human endeavour, but by the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Let's stand together now to sing that song. And we just give Mary... 